Chapter Seven of Dangerous Days by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two things helped greatly to restore Clayton to a more normal state of mind during the next few days. One of them undoubtedly was the Valentine situation. Beside Audrey's predicament and Chris's wretched endeavor to get away and yet prove himself a man, his own position seemed, if not comfortable, at least tenable. He would have described it had he been a man to put such a thing into words, as that he and Natalie didn't exactly hit it off. There were times, too, during those next few days, when he wondered if he had not exaggerated their incompatibility. Natalie was unusually pleasant. She spent some evening hours on the arm of his big chair, talking endlessly about the Lindale house, and he would lean back, smiling, and pretend to a mad interest in black-and-white tiles and lodges. He made no further protest as to the expense. "'Tell me,' he said once, "'what does a fellow wear in this, uh, Italian palace? If you have any intention of draping me in a toga and putting vine-leaves in my hair, or whatever those wreaths were made of—' Natalie had no sense of humour, however. She saw that he meant to be amusing, and she gave the little fleeting smile one gives a child who is being rather silly. Of course, he went on, we'll have Roman baths, and be anointed with oil afterwards, by lady Greek slaves. Perfumed oil. Don't be vulgar, Clay. And he saw she was really offended. While there was actually no change in their relationship, which remained as it had been for a dozen years, their surface life was pleasanter, and even that small improvement cheered him greatly. He was thankful for such a peace, even when he knew that he had bought it at a heavy price. The other was his work. The directorate for the new munition plant had been selected, and on Thursday of that week he gave a dinner at his club to the directors. It had been gratifying to him to find how easily his past reputation carried the matter of the vast credits needed, how absolutely his new board deferred to his judgment. The dinner became, in a way, an ovation. He was vastly pleased and a little humbled. He wanted terribly to make good, to justify their faith in him. They were the big financial men of his time, and they were agreeing to back his judgment to the fullest extent. When the dinner was over, a few of the younger men were in no mood to go home. They had dined and wined, and the night was young. Dennis Nolan, who had been present as the attorney for the new concern, leaned back in his chair and listened to them with a sort of tolerant cynicism. "'Oh, go home, you fellows,' he said at last. "'You make me sick. Enough's enough. Why the devil does every dinner like this have to end in a debauch?' In the end, however, both he and Clayton went along, Clayton at least frankly anxious to keep an eye on one or two of them until they started home. He had the usual standard, of course, except for himself. A man's private life, so long as he was not a bounder, concerned him not at all. But this had been his dinner. He meant to see it through. Once or twice he had seen real tragedy come to men as a result of the recklessness of long dinners, many toasts, and the instinct to go on and make a night of it. Afterward they went to a midnight roof-garden, and at first it was rather dreary. Their youth was only comparative, after all and the eyes of the girls who danced and sang passed over them to rest on boys in their twenties. Nolan chuckled. "'Pathetic,' he said. 
the saddest sight in the world every one of you here would at this moment give up everything he's got to be under thirty oh shut up someone said almost savagely of course there are compensations he drawled at twenty you want to take the entire bunch home and keep em at thirty you know you can't but you still want to at forty and over you don't want them at all but you think it's damned curious they don't want you clayton had watched the scene with a rather weary interest he was indeed trying to put himself in graham's place at graham's age he remembered once at twenty having slipped off to see the black crook then the epitome of wickedness and the disillusionment of seeing women in tights with their accentuated curves and hideous lack of appeal to the imagination the caterers of such wares had learned since then here were soft draperies instead laces and chiffons the suggestion was not to the eyes but to the mind how devilishly clever it all was perhaps there were some things he ought to discuss with graham he wondered how a man led up to such a thing nolan bent toward him i've been watching for a girl he said but i don't see her last time i was here i came with chris she was his girl chris yes it stumped me at first she came and sat with us not a bad little thing but good lord clay ignorant and not even pretty and chris was fastidious in a way i don't understand it the ancient perplexity of a man over the sex selections of his friends puckered his forehead damned if i understand it he repeated a great wave of pity for audrey valentine surged in clayton spencer's heart she had known it of course that was why chris had gone away how long had she known it she was protecting chris's name even now for all her frivolity there was something rather big in audrey the way she had held up at her dinner for instance and he rather fancied that the idea of his going into the army had come from her directly or indirectly so chris from being a fugitive was already by way of being a hero to his friends poor audrey he made a mental note to send her some flowers in the morning he ordered them on his way downtown and for some curious reason she was in his mind most of the day Chris had been a fool to throw away a thing so worth having. Not every man had behind him a woman of Audrey's sort. End of chapter 7